Hey folks, welcome back. This is episode 36 of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. Today's guest is Aaron Gadson. Aaron is a coach specializing in the triple jump. He currently coaches one of the world's best female triple jumpers, Thea Lafond, as well as several other athletes in the event at various different levels. I have known of Aaron for quite a while, but after doing a lot more research on his social media page and hearing from different coaches, I realized that this is someone who is very thoughtful and very detail-oriented, as a colleague described him as. And, you know, it really leaks into how this episode went. And, you know, there's a great amount of information on the technical and physical side within this episode that I think you're all going to enjoy. Some of the topics that we went into, everything from the approach as a triple jumper and the nuances between different athletes with different characteristics, uh, but also like the common, you know, shapes that he looks for when hitting the ground off the hop and the distance that you usually see from the center of mass in order to execute a good hop and perhaps also how you can spot some errors, which is really helpful for coaches who are looking to kind of scrub up on their coaching eye or, or see the cause and effect of the event. Because as we know in the triple jump and in the long jump and various other technical events, it's rarely the position or the thing that is going wrong uh, existing in isolation, rather that it is a product of a position or a thing that was done beforehand. And I think Aaron really is very good at spotting these things and understanding them and communicating them because he's very thoughtful about everything he said. And again, it really enables you to take away a lot from this episode. Um, on top of that, of course, bounding progressions and and where you would start with an elite jumper like Thea versus maybe some of the the more amateur athletes that he's worked with. And he really shows that, you know, uh, technique is is kind of the aspect that he's looking at most closely um, as it influences maybe where he will take the athlete uh, to more intense or complex progressions. So, you know, as I said, a lot in this one that I think you're going to enjoy. And before we get started, I just want to thank Output Sports again for the continued support. Um, Output Sports, if you're not familiar with what they do, they have a wearable device that connects to your phone with a bunch of different presets on it. Um, everything from range of motion testing to, you know, monitoring your plyometric training, if it's step jumps, hurdle jumps, um, and even, you know, more rudimentary stuff. You can basically get a mode on their app for pretty much anything you can think of. And that also extends into the lifting too. So if it's Olympic lifts or just more strength-based lifts, they have specific presets uh, for all of those and the key metrics that go along with it that coaches are looking for. So if you'd like to try a demo or even purchase a device, you can use the promo code columnburk 10 at the checkout for 10% off. Now onto the episode with Aaron Gadsen. Thanks again for the support and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, everyone, to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. I am overjoyed today to be joined by one of the best triple jump coaches in the world, Coach Aaron Gadsen. Aaron, thanks for coming on. No problem, man. Happy to Aaron, be here. Yeah, well, it's it's a busy time of year for you, so I appreciate you taking the time out to to you know explain all of the great things that you're doing uh, in the coaching world and 
before we do that, I wanted to kind of get a little bit of a background on on how you got to where you are now, which is obviously coaching one of the the best triple jumpers in the world, along with many other uh, rising athletes in the event too. Sure. Um, so as far as my background, like I ran track in high school and then I got recruited at a few universe, NCAA universities and I, I ended up going to Cornell and jumping there doing long jump and triple jump in particular. And in high school, I did more like they, I was getting recruited to be a multi too. So I did hurdles. I did some high jump and some sprints and stuff too. But in college, I was really only good enough to do long and triple jump. But while we were there, we had two NCAA champions um, and the two different guys that were NCAA championships in the triple jump. Um, at that time, you know, you could get away with jumping 16 mid and, and win NCAAs. It's a lot different <laughs> now. Um, but then like after that, um, you know, I just, I was like, okay, I, I, I didn't make it to the national meet or just the regional meet. So I was just jumping like 15 and you know, 15 meters and stuff like that. So I wanted to, to, to do more afterward, after college, post-collegially, just because I felt like I could be better. And I felt like the guys that, you know, were NCAA champions that I trained with all the time, like I keep up with them, I was stronger than them. Like I could sometimes beat them in practice doing short approach stuff and things like that. And so, you know, I just felt like I had more to offer, not necessarily that I was going to be an Olympian or something, but just like, I just was, was unsatisfied. Um, and then, so, you know, I started doing the post-cleatic stuff in a school near where I was living, had an indoor track. I coached kind of just like as part of the deal of using the track, I coached the kids there. And then I kind of, you know, really fell in love with coaching, um, while I was training, I actually ended up like having like a really bad knee injury. And so that kind of just like forced me to just coach more seriously. Um, but I ended up coaching a bunch of high school kids in the area. A lot of the kids got, you know, to be a lot better. You know, I had some a bunch of kids go to the national meet. I had some state champions and things like that. Nothing on like the international level, but a lot of kids that got, you know, D1 scholarships and stuff like that. Um and then Thea, who I, you know, people who people know me now, um, she is from the area that I'm in, coincidentally. And so she, when she graduated college, she was training kind of out here and she was helping her high school coach a little bit while she was training. So that's how I kind of get introduced to her. And I mentioned to you, one of the guys that I, that I used to um, train with, he was NCAA champion. He was a London Olympian for the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, and he also went to Rio. And so after Rio, and Thea hadn't done well. She was with a different coach. She reached out to Muhammad, and, and Muhammad, because we literally were living together, we had really good friends, um, he was like, hey, you should work with Aaron. Like, he's, you know, he's helped me out with what I've done. He's really good. And that's kind of how we linked up, and, you know, I guess the rest is history there, but... You know, throughout that time, like, you know, I got USATF certifications. I, you know, I'm always studying up on stuff and things like that. I have an engineering background, so it's just something that was just interesting to me. And I guess I learned enough to to do really well. And you've got a quite a large social media following. Like, you post very detailed things about the triple jump, and it shows how much passion and knowledge you've got for the event. And it's certainly been cool to see kind of like Tia's rise into the world rankings. And I'd I'd love to know a little bit more about 
since you got her in just after the Rio Olympics, like what was her development like? Kind of some of the main hurdles that you had to overcome and things you had to work on to get her to this point. And of course, there are very small pieces, but um, what do you think were like kind of the low hanging fruit that you really tapped into to get her to obviously being like a very high 14 meter jumper? Um, I think, well, I think the the great things about Thea is that like she was kind of all in from day one. And so what I mean by that is like, I think some athletes can be like skeptical and, and, and I think she, you know, she, she had the right to be skeptical with me because I haven't coached anybody at that level, but it was kind of like, Hey, whatever you do, I'm going to do it. And, you know, to a hundred percent of my ability. And she was very trusting in that regard. And so when Thea came in, like her, some, a little bit about her history is, you know, I told you she's from this area. She's kind of like legendary in this area because she went to the state meet and won four events mm-hmm. at one time. She went on hurdles, long jump, triple jump, high jump. And then when she went in college, the NCAA system, she was a multi and a high jumper. So she's gone 185 in the high jump a bunch of times. She, you know, she had her conference record in in the, the pentathlon. And but in her triple jump, she's never all American in the triple jump. I think she may jump 13 30 or something in 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 college um and so i think she came in with really good just like general fitness right like she's just she's pretty strong she had really good like proprioception and things like that um and i think like multis just have a really good just general back athletic background and there's pretty athletes and stuff like that and so I think, but for her, the reason why she probably wasn't jumping as far as she could have is because her technique was just really bad. She was really aggressive, but technically, I mean, if you go on my Instagram, you can kind of see where she used to be. Like, she just was very, like, raggedy, just all, like, raw, just energy. And so I think um, the challenges with her really was just around getting her to focus that aggression and, and, and to be more technical and things like that. Certainly she got faster, she got stronger, she got leaner. Um, but I think a lot of it just really came down to, hey, you can't just like brute force triple jump. Like you have to do stuff the right way. Um, and I mean, we did that, you know, because she, 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 you know, she was single arm, she wanted to double arm. Her previous coach thought that was girls can't double arm and so I was like hey let's do double arm and day one we started double arm and we figured it out and she's now probably the furthest I would say woman jumper ever with the double arm would she be as far as I know yeah and so on your part in the beginning was there any you know maybe not knowing that that's a common template for women to use were you even like a little bit not skeptical but concerned that this mightn't be a good strategy long term or did you just feel as though it was it was going to work no i thought it was going to work i'm not saying to say i thought she was going to jump but she's jumping now necessarily but like i i didn't say this earlier but like i i have an engineering background so i have like a strong like math and science background i'm you know uh, for me, I looked at it like any guy that I talked about with single versus double, like they'd say like, yeah, girls just don't do double. They can't do it. They're not strong enough, blah, 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 whatever. And it was just kind of like a really like hand wavy explanation. And and so I, I looked at it as like, well, if 
if we can let high school guys triple jump, then why can't like elite women triple jump? Because they're stronger and faster than these guys. So like those arguments just don't make any sense. And so I, I always felt like to me, I always felt like double arm is just like, like a lot easier to do. Like it feels easier doing it. And like I'll have kids try it out. A lot of times I have like, you know, high school kids, high school girls try it out and they just feel like it's it's easier. I mean, I think there is some um research that that support that and I can talk a little bit more about that later if you want. But like I wasn't I wasn't concerned about that. I think that the biggest if there's a concern, the concern is more around can she pick it up technically, not will it be useful if she mm -hmm. if she can do it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what people will do with the double arm and triple triple jump is like they want they they really set up for it. And if mm -hmm. they set up then they're gonna lose a, a ton of speed. So if you're losing a ton of speed to do it, it's like you're kind of giving up. You're, you're giving up too much to do it, and it's not going to be worth it at that point. So you still got to figure out how to maintain speed to do it properly. Yeah, and if you watch like the likes of Tia or even just recently, of course, talk of triple jump, Jaden Hibbert, like he, he used it very effectively, and it looks like he's not even going to do anything with his arms in terms of it. Like, you know, it's complete running coordination right till takeoff so you can see that he's like very efficient with with how he punches through um mm -hmm. and i suppose that's kind of yeah probably one of the limitations that that many people have is that they they do see some uh, deceleration um come before the board and i suppose one thing that i would like to talk about and i think would would coincide with a lot of um errors that are so seen in the triple jump is like kind of the the run i suppose and how impulse or aggression within the early steps kind of help facilitate um some of the takeoff mechanisms that you're looking for you know um that kind of subtle bounce in the run and how it would make the phases become more seamless is that part of like any of your coaching philosophy as a as it pertains to the triple jump model that you're after or um does does it does it have a place yeah so you're asking like does the way that you set up the acceleration yep. like, is that an important part about how people take off and things like that yeah do you feel like it kind of i guess the vertical component to the run have an influence on what will later facilitate the phases um yes yeah it can it can and and so let me let me let me try to say it like this i think that like a key component for sure of any jump is well maybe not any but horizontal jump you need to have a requisite amount of speed coming into the board like if you do this really bouncy run and you're not going anywhere like that's not going to be useful right I think if if all things being equal, if we have a bouncy run versus a, a high turnover run, like we're mm -hmm. going the same speed, bouncy runs I think can be better because for big time triple jump, you have to be able to like slow your hop down. If you let your your limb frequency like bleed too much into your hop, you're gonna rush that hop and that's gonna totally like constrain 
the distance that you jump. If you have a tiny hop, like there's only so far you can go. And so if you watch like really good men triple jumpers, they're really turning over, turning over, and then they hop and it's like really slow and then active. I think a lot of times, like younger kids, you can just see them they do this really quick hop and it's not going to work. And so if you have a bouncier run coming into it, it's going to be a lot easier to kind of slow that thing down. Like if you're really small and short, like, you know, you're going to have to have high frequency and it's just going to be harder. But I don't necessarily think that you need to be bouncy coming into the end. Um, I mean, I don't know. You think, look at somebody like... um. Tiana, I don't know what her last name is now, Bonnerletta or mm-hmm. whatever. Like, she's just she runs ten seven. You run ten seven, you can jump seven meters, no problem. She, mm-hmm. she you know, she has a jump where she might have jumped over almost twenty five feet. And so it's like, you can do it the really high frequency way. It it can work. Mm-hmm. You know, you could or you can be like Spanovic and have more of a bouncy like open run, and, and that can work too. Um. Do you think it matters for the characteristics of the jumper? Because because we'll just even compare like Spanovic and, and Tiana, like those two probably would be, let's say, or well, it's an assumption, of course, but Spanovic looks like a power athlete or she looks a bit bigger. She's taller. Um, that high frequency run may not work for her because she wouldn't be able to channel maybe her her key strength. But maybe I'm just saying that because that's how she always done it. Um, in in terms of she never went with a very very high frequency approach. So how would we know? But um, do you think that like certain body types or or let's say natural strengths do kind of dictate how you should perhaps carry out the approach? If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I I think so. I mean, we're obviously we're talking in theory, right? Like I don't. I think I think the problem sometimes we 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 go down this rabbit hole of like trying to to like categorize people too aggressively start talking about things like genetics and blah 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 whatever we don't have a little like little codex that just tells you like oh this is type power jumper and this is type speed like Mm -hmm. like those things over time change you know like you can change people's like fiber types and you can change their elasticity and their stiffness and all that stuff like those things can change over time and so like I don't want to like pigeonhole people into certain things. Certainly, I think that those they're at opposite. They can I want to say they're opposite sides of the spectrum, but they have some. They are very spiky on certain characteristics. Like Bartoletta might be the fastest person ever on the runway, right? And then Spanovic, she's like super. She's probably one of the strongest long jumpers ever. At least she looks like it, mm-hmm. right? And so like, I definitely Spanovic. Like she's not going to be able to run as fast as tiana like at least the way the current way that she's training yep and so and because she's probably has more you know uh cross-sectional area like muscle mass like she might take a little bit more time she might need more impulse like more contact time and and time to be propulsive to actually do what she needs to do compared to tiana who her contact times are probably you know very short and she's very good at getting off the ground very quickly and so because of that like like they they should kind of work on those strengths and and 
and, and and like lean into those things. Yep. And so like if if Spanovic, like for instance, if you had towed Spanovic, you know, eleven meters per second across the board, and then try to have her take off, she probably wouldn't take off very well because she needs that time to do like even if she works fast enough her body wouldn't be able to generate enough like impulse off the ground for her to, to jump seven mm-hmm. meters. I keep calling her spin. Her last name is Loletta. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, I just think like people are going to have certain characteristics at certain time periods and you, you can't just, can't break that. Like you mm-hmm. can't force her. You can't be like, well, so-and-so's contact time is this. So you have to do that to jump seven meters. Mm-hmm. Like, you got what you got and like you work with that and then over time you can develop it and you know maybe five years later you can hit that contact time but you can't just force it yeah yeah and i've totally learned that through anecdotal experiences that you can kind of nudge things like you can you might make some gains in certain areas and you know you might say oh um, and you know previously i couldn't take off at you know 10.3 meters per second but sometimes you've got to actually continuously try you know, for a little while and, and, and put yourself in the scenario to kind of convert that. And, you know, if it's not way outside the bandwidth of, of your capabilities or what you've done previously, then it might be what you need in order to make the next kind of jump, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Those yeah, are kind of, yeah. those are kind of the signs we look for really, isn't it? When it comes down to, you know, making those gains and, um, I suppose yeah, it's, 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 it would be, silly of us to think that you know everything is is not malleable like certain things are of course um along a spectrum uh, they have the ability to be nudged and and so forth with mm-hmm. regard with regards to you know back on the let's say arm technique i suppose obviously there's the natural ability to perform or coordinate one over the other but do you believe that maybe a single arm versus a double arm does suit again i don't want to categorize people as such but beyond coordination do you think that a double arm is performed by certain individuals more so based on their physiological characteristics and similarly is it also um replicated by those who like a single arm in that they are they possess some characteristics of their own mm, uh, uh, yeah yeah maybe like i i would say that like speed if i'm just using kind of these vague categories of speed and power like i think that maybe more powerful people might prefer double arm and maybe more speed people might prefer single mm. but like i think when you look at the men jumping there's not like i think there are guys that are faster than other guys but pretty much all of them do double there are there are a few guys that do single but most of them do double and so when i look at that and i look at some of the research like i think that if even if you're somebody who's really elastic, someone who can get off the ground really quickly, generate force really quickly, double arm still can be better if if you use it in the right way. So like one of the things that double arm can help you do is that when you when you're swinging your arms and you swing your arms downward, your body 
has to go up a little bit. So what that means is that like when you actually hit the ground, you have a little bit more cushion. And so but what typically happens is that people that that when you also do double arm because your arms can come back farther, your your the leg that you're bounding on is going to kind of reach out a little bit farther and maybe hit the hit out farther in front of your center map. Mm -hmm. So like what that does is that means that you're probably going to have longer contact times, right? And so if you have longer contact times, then there's going to be probably a little bit more breaking force, but you're going to have more vertical impulse coming out of it. And so like you're, you're trading those things off, but even if you're elastic and you want to, you want to keep that contact time shorter, there's still a way for you to swing the arms like less open to keep that um, contact a little bit quicker. And so if you want to, if you think like, maybe to more of an extreme version of like some of the Cuban jumpers, they have like really big swings, like really open arms and stuff like that, really big cycles and things like that. They're going to be much more like longer contact times and like much more like air time and things like that. But I think there is a version of double arm that you can do that might be more like Christian Taylor style where you can still be super fast off the ground and the arms can help you you know, be more propulsive off of the phase and, and, and be able to translate your center of mass more over, over your foot. Hmm. Yeah, I, that... I, I don't know if people are, are coaching it at that level of nuance, mm -hmm. but I, I think in theory, regardless of, you know, your characteristics, as far as you know, your stiffness and things like that, double arm is probably like better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, as you've said there, there's there's ways to kind of manipulate it a little bit to like lean into what athlete you're working with either way. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I think for instance, like because Thea is really strong, you know, I want her to have really big ranges of motion on her phases. And I don't, I don't think that should be the same for let's say like Rojas, like you know, like, like she, Rojas is really just about maintaining speed. And I don't, she doesn't have, at least I don't think she doesn't have the same type of like strength that Thea does, at least at the joint angles that we're talking about. And so, you know, I don't think necessarily one is better than the other. Obviously, Rojas jumps super far. And, you know, it's not a knock on her. It's just she's going to be more about maintaining speed, getting those contacts really under her body, moving through them really fast. And, you know, I don't think Thea should jump that way because she's not as fast and as long. Mm -hmm. So another nuance that I'd like to jump on there, as you've as you've mentioned it, because I really love like the touchdown points and how that kind of leans into certain athletes with regards to like you've mentioned that the front side distance will vary depending on, you know, the type of jumper or you would like it to vary on the type of jumper that you're talking about or their, their strengths and what have you. Do you feel like the actual, let's say, the angle at touchdown should be pretty much universally the same for for athletes? And and what I mean is like like a little bit straighter of a leg versus a bent leg, um, or is it universally like, no, I want it pretty straight because it's supposed to utilize as much elastic energy as possible? Or do you think there is some variance with that? Well. 
I don't I don't think that the straightness necessarily dictates the stiffness. Okay. I, 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 so so yes, if your leg is totally straight, then like you're gonna be relying much more heavily on connective tissue than than like muscular contractions, right? And so like that is a, a way to kind of like cheat and get some more elasticity. I think at some point though that 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 will like blow your connective tissue apart. And so like you have to rely on your muscles a little bit. And so but but the, but the farther out that you're, you you contact away from your body, the more that there's probably going to be some bend on the contact. And so you have to be able just so that the breaking force is going to be a lot harder and you're going to depend more on your, your muscles. And just from like a physics standpoint, your the moment, the moment arm is longer. And so that means the torques are bigger. And so like, you know, your, your tend your connective tissue and your muscles have to work together to be able to kind of like handle all of those forces. And so I, I just, I don't think that I basically think that the closer your, your body or the closer the contact is to your body, the more straight your, your leg is naturally going to be and the, the less torque is necessary. So like you can kind of get away with doing that. I, I mean, I think if you, you hit the straight legged far out in front of your body, you're going to tear ACL or something. Mm-hmm. So like there, there has to be, you know, some compromise of that, I guess, stiffness. And, and you don't necessarily, in some ways you, you have to, I guess technically you have to be more compliant the farther out you hit because the contact is longer. You can't be super fast off the ground if your body is not even past your body. If, mm-hmm. if your center of mass is not past your foot, you, you can't take off yet. Yep. So you don't want to be as stiff if you hit farther out in front of your body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I completely understand where you're coming from on that. And as regards to like kind of like, I guess, molding that technical model for the athlete like does that kind of take place like where you want the athlete to become more comfortable um contacting just based on who they are and it might be very similar for all people when you're using very rudimentary bounding but um does there any variance of that take place per athlete because i know you work with like quite a few different triple jumpers so um Mm -hmm. maybe it's based on the level of them but maybe it's also based on you know what what you see in them regarding their their strengths and whatnot i think it's definitely based off of the athlete i wouldn't necessarily say it's based off like level per se mm-hmm. i mean i think yeah the, the 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 farther you're jumping the more i guess active that contact can be like the bigger your cycle and swings and stuff can be um you know i've had some like high school boys be pretty aggressive and stuff. Um, I, I I wouldn't say that I necessarily, I definitely have never like, hey, you, you got to hit 20 centimeters in front of your center mass, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I'm not, I'm never like that prescriptive. But I think it's more like something that you can just see through their bounding. You can say like, hey, like this person's really elastic, get off the ground really quick, they're, or they're really fast. So like for them... I'm okay with with them spending, you know, less time on the ground. And so I just want them to, to I'm going to cue them and say, hey, I want you to bring as much speed through the board as you can. Or I want you to, to 
to be as active as you can and get that foot under you or something like that. Um, and, and, and there's obviously a level of experimentation, right? You know, you try that out and they see it like, wow, that was, that was farther. That felt good or whatever. And then, but other people, you know, like yet yeah, literally on Tuesday with, with Thea, I said, she was hitting some of them. She was going really big, but she was hitting too far out. And I was like, listen, like, you got to get that thing a little bit better under you. And she's like, I thought I was supposed to hit out in front of my body. I was like, you are, but you're like way out there. You know, you don't, you know, because at some point, as I just talked about, the, the farther out your foot goes, the more torque is required. And essentially what that torque is being calculated by, you know, your body or, you know, your Golgi tendons or muscle spindles. And they're like, hey, that's too much. <laughs> and you're just going to collapse. Like that collapsing happens involuntarily. And so that if that collapse is happening, your body is like warning you, like that's, you didn't hit that in the right spot. That's too much for you to handle. So if she's doing that, then, you know, you got to bring it back a little bit and that's okay. So that would be kind of a, an error that you would look for commonly is that like, if there's a lot of bend happening, um, at the touchdown point, that one of the possible reasons for it is because of, well, I guess how far in front it is. Mm -hmm. It could be how far out front, or it could be a, a posture thing. So if you if you're hitting with your chest really far forward too, and that leg isn't, um, there's no um pretensioning of that leg, then there's just going to be a massive, like um, peak force that your body's probably going to tell you to stop. Mm -hmm. And when you say pretension, you mean kind of locking out the leg a little bit, dorsiflexion type action. Well. Yes and no. So, like, I, I think that, like, I, honestly, I believe that, like, dorsiflexion is a cue to help people, to, it's a cue for people to be, to stabilize the joint. It's not, it's less about the toe being, like, up, it's about the ankle being stiff. Mm. Like, you don't, you don't want to hit the ground, even when you're running, you don't want to hit if you're truly dorsiflex, like you don't want to hit the ground like on like your heel, right? Mm -hmm. Like everybody's gonna like there's gonna be some pronation and a little bit. I wouldn't say it's like plantar flexion, like technically, but the foot is gonna be more neutral and, and is moving is moving from dorsiflexion to neutral to maybe even a tiny bit of plantar flexion, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And but 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 what that's done is that if you're dorsiflex first then that sets up a little bit of like stretch, elastic stretch. And so now that foot is coming down and it's already has some energy before it hits the ground. And so like when you're jumping, definitely you're, you're going to be more heel to toe and it's going to be a flatter contact. And so that dorsiflexion is even kind of more important. But what I'm saying is that sometimes you can be dorsiflex and still hit the ground and there's not much pretensioning because your foot is just locking. You know, it's almost like locked out. The whole, the one of the most important parts about being like active. So like that foot, you know, your 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 leg is gonna open up a little bit at the knee, and then you're gonna whip it, to, it down towards the ground. What that is doing is it's like pretensioning like the hamstrings, for instance, mm -hmm. and and like your glutes, so that when they hit the ground, they're already ready for some of that force. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you just stick your foot out your muscles aren't really like actively contracting. Yeah. And so like what you're trying to, you're trying to re reduce the uh, amount of uh, 
breaking force, or maybe not, maybe not reduce the breaking force. You're trying to reduce the coupling time. So the time it takes for your body to like hit the ground, respond, and like deal with that force such that you can get into propulsion. You're trying to reduce that time. And so you reduce that time by already contracting those um, those muscles before they even hit the ground. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. so if if your body is not is not actively contracting and then it hits, and then through that time, that coupling time, it puts itself in a worse position, and the piece forces are gonna have to be even higher to get you out of that position. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that could be an error within, let's say, using some of the cues like um, rolling heel to toe contact that they can come too heavy at times because it's not really teaching that latter part of, let's say, the reflexive part of the contact? I, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, yeah. that it's just fixing the foot versus, again, kind of freeing it to be responsive, if that makes sense. Because obviously you don't want a toey landing, but you know, some yeah. of the times the excessive heel rolling can almost leave it to being a little bit too heavy and maybe not utilizing some of that reflexivity. I agree with that. I think that particularly in like younger men or young boys, like they can kind of go overboard with that. And you can, you can like almost hear them like their heel hits and their foot slaps the ground. Yeah. And like, you definitely don't want to do that. That's, there's going to be a ton of breaking force. And, and so like, I guess you know you put everything in super slow motion. You, you your heel is going to hit the ground first. Yes. But I think if if you're watching it from real time, it doesn't necessarily look heel to toe. It looks mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like a flatter contact. And so if you have a really like heely contact, that's a that means that the angle that your foot is hitting, there's going to be a lot of like breaking force into your body. You're, there's going to always be some of that because if your body hits in front of the mat, front of your center of mass, there's always going to be some of that. But the more that that foot is kind of rotated like this, you're going to put even more of that force into your body, and mm -hmm. that's not really helping you do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in more ways than one. Yeah, from a performance yeah. standpoint and injury prevention. For sure. Yeah. And and it's kind of almost in my experience, like some of the contrast between let's say a European and a US philosophy is that sometimes the Europeans can be very like kind of like in endorsing, let's say a little bit more of that plantar flexion to kind of get a little bit stretcher in the Achilles. And then sometimes the classical like US philosophy, or let's say some of the like interpretations of like the heel to toe contact can be almost altering too much of a heavy ground contact if that makes sense it's kind mm -hmm. of like two extremes there almost but it probably exists somewhere in the middle um what you would quote unquote and i'm and i'm really um saying like this like with no real va va validity behind it but like that it would be optimal you know to have somewhere in the middle yeah i think so i mean i think i've heard some of like like the swedish guys seem to be a lot more about planar reflection and stuff and even when they do in some of their like ankle wing kind of drills, they're they're really like toey, and there definitely is is a lot of benefit to building that Achilles, like in, in getting that elasticity. I think especially for speed in particular. Mm -hmm. But like when you get beyond speed, especially like you 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 
when you're running, like your peak forces might be like five times body weight or something. Mm -hmm. Right. But then when you're jumping, it could be 10, 20, uh, you know, who knows what it is. It's been measured at least 15 to 20. Right. And so it's like, you can't put all that in your Achilles. Your Achilles is going to be done. Mm -hmm. So like you have to have a flatter contact for you to help, you know, get your hamstrings and glutes engaged and, and your quad engaged as well. Like, so you can't just be totally, but at the same time, you don't want to be breaking so much that you're losing a bunch of speed. So yeah, it has to be some kind of happy medium there. Um, but, but also, like I said too, you know, when you're, when you're sprinting, you know, you're, you might be on the ground for a 10th of a second or sometimes less than a 10th of a second. Right. But when you're jumping, it's up to, you know, it's more like, you know, 0.15 or 0.12 to 0.18, you know, depending on which phase you're talking about. And so it's like, you, you don't, your Achilles, you don't want your Achilles to be super responsive to the contact and then you're off the ground. Like, you're not going to have any vertical impulse. Like, you can't, the goal of triple jump is not purely to just maintain as much speed to the last phase. Like, you do that, you're not going to go anywhere. You, 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 there has to be some, you know, vertical impulse coming off of each phase and you know how much you do that depends on the type of jumper you are and what, what uh capabilities you have and you you mentioned you know before we kind of got on like recording that short approach work is is brilliant for you know technical work or or that it can be very i wouldn't say brilliant there were not your words but it can be very beneficial in the beginning um for jumpers but as time goes on it might may not yield as much benefit so you kind of need to vary the stimulus in order to get let's say more bang for your book so um i'm, I'm assuming that kind of plays into some of the ground contact times that you just mentioned there um what are some of those methods that you you like to utilize with the with say obviously tia because she's your main elite jumper and i'm assuming that's the kind of barrier that you've you faced with her more so than than the rest of the jumpers you coach yeah, I, well, I think I I hit that barrier with her too. Like I get when I'm saying like my first year or two with Thea, like I got excited about you know she jumped well, she qualified for world championships and stuff, so like she had a fine year. But you're like, oh man, she went from six steps, she went 13 meters, so wow, that means she's gonna jump whatever 1450, and like maybe that's possible. But like I think I've I've learned and the more coaches I've talked to, it's like there are some athletes that are like terrible at short approach stuff but they're super fast and super elastic they get some speed behind them and they, they can jump 1480 right and so it's like the short approach stuff doesn't really matter if you know how to triple jump when you're learning how to triple jump you know doing a short approach stuff is 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 good because it helps people slow things down it helps them learn they're built they're actually are building more resiliency like they're getting the contacts in and stuff so like short approach definitely can be helpful but you know you don't, you don't want to rely on it too much when you actually start adding in real speed also when you're young like maybe you should only be when you first learn how to triple jump you should only go be going from eight steps mm -hmm. and then you get better then you go to 10 and then 12 and you start working your way back but if your real approach is 18 or 20 steps you know, going from eight steps into and muscling it is not going to help you. Um, but to answer your question, like, I think the way that I I try to get around that with with Thea is like, 
we do do a lot of shorter post stuff. Like we, uh, most of the stuff we do is from like six steps, maybe eight steps sometimes. Um, but when we do it, we make sure that it's done the right way as far as like the posture and, and where she's hitting the ground and in the contact times and stuff like that. And so like I have um, some devices that I can use to measure real time, get contact times and things like that. And I'm always on her. Like, I don't, I rarely measure her short approach stuff. So I'm not like, hey, we need to jump this far, or jump past the cones or whatever. It's like I needed to be in the right posture. I, I need things to hit in the right place. And I think if, if you are using those as like your KPIs as opposed to like distance, then you're going to be, um, then you're, then you're going to be in a good spot. Like you're going to be disciplined enough to, to not just get, you know, let your ego drive what happens at practice. And if you want mm. it to be about ego and jumping as far as you can, then you're going to put yourself in bad positions and it's not going to really translate. Like there's a million guys that they're like, Oh, look at what I short approached. And then the guy jumps, you know, 30 centimeters farther from full approach. And so who cares? Right. Um, but, but I think something else I mentioned earlier, what I do to get get the the speed in there is I have a like a machine that allows us to do assisted bounds and I use that pretty often. And so I can literally I can I know how far each phase is, I know what the contact time was, I know what her speed was through everything. And so I can progressively you know increase that in a really controlled way to make sure that we're hitting the right type of, you know, uh, kinematics that, that I would expect. Mm -hmm. and you think that's a useful way to kind of bridge the gap between like because you say most of your short approach stuff is like six to eight steps do you think that's like a good way without going full approach or 12 steps or anything like that to actually expose her to like the velocities and stuff like that that she's going to experience in a in a more full jump yeah because i mean i think one of the other thing that can become weird is like when you go from these kind of like middle um, approach instead of as opposed to a short approach, so let's say like 10, 12 steps, a lot of athletes have trouble figuring out like, how do I actually approach? So like, should I push? Should I push for the same amount of steps? Or like, and so it's like you're doing this thing where you're changing your approach rhythm mm -hmm. in this way that feels like unnatural. Mm -hmm. and, and so like, your speed either you're trading off either speed or posture mm -hmm. and then when when you do that then it's like is it actually replicating what i wanted to replicate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so when i have the assistant thing the assistant brings you to the speed that you need and you can keep the posture that you want and i can make sure that things are the right speed and contact times that, that i'm looking for mm -hmm. as as a human i think it's harder to get to the speeds that you want in a consistent way yeah no i totally agree with that and, and that is as my experience as a long jumper goes in, in 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 probably the last two pieces of information you've given there are 100 percent true short approaches are really hard to do consistently well and they're not the same as full approach so you're kind of always guessing how much your acceleration should be similar and then the other thing you said is that yeah you can show up to practice and really just throw the positions out the window go for the ego 
boost and um you know knock a big one out there but not really replicate it when it comes to the thing that uh, is is most important so i think what i find myself now doing after kind of learning that lesson is just going for posture and and all the rest of it yeah yeah but i also add one extra piece and like i don't want to like talk down a short approach stuff like i think they can be useful and i i just don't i don't want people to get fixated on them and then forget about technique sometimes even in a real competition like you have to dial the technique down a little bit and be competitive as far as at least how your your mind is right and so it's like if you're a practice and like you're doing short approach stuff and there's a guy that jumps what you jump like sometimes like you have to practice being competitive too mm -hmm. and so that means that you just do what you got to do and jump far as hell that's an important skill to develop too but mm -hmm. if that's all that you're doing and you're forgetting about technique and you think because you jumped far here that that's going to translate then mm -hmm. like you might be in trouble mm -hmm. so in an ideal world if i'm hearing you correctly is that you train the skill of technique first so that when the arousal levels are heightened you can add the competitive layer on there and mm -hmm. expect that the technique will be stable yeah yeah because like you're in a competition i don't i don't you definitely shouldn't be like well there's these 10 things you got to work on and figure like in a competition it might be there's this one thing you really need to do and then everything else should just be kind of, you know, second nature. But if you try to fix five things, you're going to do none of them well, and it's going to be bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that that advice goes a long way for, for many people is because, you you know, we all talk about, and I, I've mentioned this in the podcast before, like as when you're achieving PRs, and you probably know this as an athlete yourself, is like many PRs just feel easy. And that's you're rarely concentrating on a lot of things when that happens. And I think a lot of the ease comes down to a by it's a byproduct of of conscious reps done in training and that mm -hmm. ability to just switch off when it comes to time of 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 yeah heightened levels of arousal or or pr high pressure scenarios. But it's very hard to switch off when you don't have solutions to chaotic conditions or or just have them conscious reps built where you're seeing one approach feel different to to the other one that you did you know whereas like if you've taken the time to kind of like create consistency there it's a lot easier to let go and be confident in what you're about to do mm -hmm. yeah i totally agree when you're like mapping out say things like bounding progressions and and, if, and i think maybe this would pertain a little bit more to the athlete level whereas maybe some of the technical cues that you use don't um i guess does does the place in which you start with with Tia now like really become more specific as she becomes older, or do you generally like you know spend a good bit of time with with people during the fall on the extensive type work or or maybe more static bounding and and so forth? I'd I'd like to know just a little bit about kind of your considerations for for starting and progressing bounding. Um, so I think for me, I, I, I always have like a technical focus. I think that's like maybe like my strength as a coach. I mean, I don't want to also pigeonhole myself and say that either, but like, you know, cause Thea 
you know, if you believe what you, in the Tokyo report, she was like the fastest, besides Roja, she's the fastest on the runway. Um, so she got a lot faster too. But I always am working on technique. And, and so answering your question around kind of like how extensive versus intensive, like it's maybe balanced should be depending on the time of year or the, the training age of the athlete. I think that yes, for younger people or, or lower training age folks, like I probably, they would be doing lower intensity stuff for longer. Mm -hmm. Um, because like for me, like the constraint of intensity, well, intensity is constrained by uh, technical proficiency. Mm -hmm. And so like, if someone can only do things well at this speed, like that's just where we're going to be. I'm not going to mm -hmm. force them to do stuff at high intensity if they can't do it well. Yep. And so like for Thea, because you know, her technical proficiency is pretty high. Like there's going to, there's always going to be say like a month of kind of just like, if you want to call it general prep, you know, we'll, we'll have that. But like after that, we're going to be, the intensity, the intensity is not going to be constrained. It's really the volume is probably going to be more constrained, mm -hmm. you know, but for someone who has a lower training age, like they might not have, you need that extensive bounding for technical reasons, but you also need it to build the elasticity, right. Mm -hmm. it, to build that stiffness. And so like, they just, they got to get those reps in in general so they can become like a resilient jumper. Um, but you don't want to, you know, do too much or do too much intensity such that they end up getting hurt too, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, I, I, but, you know, for Thea, again, like, I don't, if if you, you I think you're in the NCAA system, like, I, things have been changing, but, like, I think a lot of coaches in the fall, they kind of get carried away with, like, getting people into, like, quote-unquote shape and so people are doing a lot of things that i would say that aren't very specific to being a good jumper mm -hmm. and, and like for me with like thea like she's doing like none of that type of stuff and she's just ramping up slowly because i don't think it's necessary for her to feel like she can't get out of bed for two weeks and because year over year like like you have what's called like muscle memory and I'm not referring specifically to like just uh, you know the skill of say triple jump, but you have a muscle memory as far as even like from a physiological standpoint of like strength. So it's like if you've gotten to a certain strength level, it's much easier to get back to that strength level than it was to, to originally build that strength. And so it's like you shouldn't have year over year you shouldn't have to spend the same amount of time to get to where you were before. Mm -hmm. So you can start to like whittle down that general prep. The, the older people get, the more training they have behind them. But we're throughout the year, we're always doing, you know, some general strengths things as far as like circuits for, and doing that for more of like, you know, recovery and like uh, from a endocrine system like standpoint, like recovery and um, hormonal reasons and things like that. But you know, you don't have to treat, you know, an elite athlete like, you know, a 14-year-old's first day of practice. Like, everyone doesn't need to go through that anymore. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it's almost a there's creating a almost a detraining effect by doing so as well. Like it would almost be doing a, a disservice to her mm-hmm. um to some point because you're trying to, you know, build on the previous season, not not go backwards. And I suppose mm-hmm. that does touch on a lot of the things that I thought you might say in the sense that yeah, the technique is gonna really dictate how you progress on with intensity and so forth. And it's then bringing me to another nuanced question that of course like will be based on who the athlete is what the exercise they're performing and so forth is but i suppose recovery times between performing the likes of extensive and intensive plyometrics is there like rules of thumb for that of course the athlete themselves is going to dictate it too because i've heard many stories of athletes who can perform plyometric type training irrespective of intensity like multiple times a week but some people can only do it once maybe even twice um do you do you think that there are general rules of thumb that you you found to be kind of safe zones for most people um i think about it maybe slightly differently like i i believe that like triple jump as well as other, you know, field events in particular are a skill. I just track and field, I think it's a skill to so even sprinting. And so I always, I, I, don't, I don't know why I use this example, but like, I think of like, if you were trying to learn how to play the piano, like, and obviously there's a different physical requirement for piano than track and field, but it's like, you wouldn't just play piano like for two hours a day, for two hours, like twice a week, right? You'd probably play piano like a little bit every day it's like shorter sessions. And so it's like for for, for Thea and, and for a lot of my athletes, I might have them do bounds every every time we're on the track, which could be, you know, four times a week. But it might just be a little bit. And so I usually have like two kind of like jump days, but even on my sprint days, I'm doing like jump specific cloud metrics. But it might be a little bit. And so, like, even I told you about, like, that assisted stuff, every time we're on the tracks of four times a week, we're doing assisted bounds. The volume is, like, pretty low. Intensity is high, but it, it, it's, like, we'll do four to six by 20 meters of assisted bounds four times a week. But on jump days, we're also going to do a bunch of jump stuff. But we'll do that stuff first, and then we'll do sprint stuff. Mm-hmm on the sprint days. And I do that because one, if you're really talking about building stiffness, like tendons technically, like if you if your goal was 100% to build the most stiff tendons in the ever, you could train your tendons three times a day every single day with very low volumes. Like that's how you should like optimize it because your tendon can they they're like their response cycle is like is literally like 6 hours, 6 to 8 hours. As long as you're not doing too much. Mm. So all you're trying to do with building tendon stiffness is send a signal to your body that, hey, this is like there's a lot of stress here and we need to rebuild better. You don't you don't want to like destroy like your cross links of your tendon and then you have to like actually like get protein in there and the collagen and rebuild that. Like you don't want to have to do that. But you want to be sending stress signals to the tendon as much as you can to build that stiffness. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you also want to just be practicing 
there's a neurological standpoint or a neurological part as far as being able to get it off the ground quickly and, and moving your body at certain velocities and stuff. So like you want to practice that skill as often as you can and you don't mm-hmm. have to do it a ton. But yes, of course, as you already kind of pointed out, like between people, also between men and women, like there's people are going to respond differently to the plyometrics. I think everybody should be doing it pretty often, but like maybe for, you know, this person, they can only do 75% of volume that somebody else does. And the, like the way that I look at it is like, you know, what's really important is that you're talking to your athletes and you're watching your athletes. Like you can't just say, Hey, this is the workout and this is what everybody's doing. You might say this is the workout that you, but you should know in your head that like, if we're going to do 10 of these things on the paper, that maybe some people are only going to do six and some people might do 10. You know what I'm saying? But you have to watch them and say, man, this person looks like crap on this one. So we're actually going to stop them here. Mm. That's fine. You know what I'm saying? Or, or I know that this person looks great and they're killing it, but tomorrow they're going to feel like crap. So I'm going to shut them down here and just leave it there. And we have to be disciplined and I have to talk to my athlete about this. Like, Hey, you remember last time when you felt, Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, the last time you felt great, like you just got to chill because you're going to be blown up tomorrow. And so, like, if you're every day, like, I ask my athlete just like a qualitative question, like, hey, like, how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling? Like, what's sore? What's whatever? Sometimes they're supposed to be sore. Other times they shouldn't be sore. They, they should, like, never be hurt. I mean, obviously things happen, but like, you don't want them to do a workout and be hurt, right? Mm-hmm. That's never the goal. So if they're feeling like that, then you, you have to adjust. And then over time, you you know what people can handle and what they can't handle. And you have to work that in. Um, and so, like, I think that's, like, the individualization. Individualization isn't necessarily that everybody's doing 100% different stuff. It's just that, like, the volume intensities can be modulated a little bit. And, and you learn that over time. And, and how they feel on that day can dictate that, too. Hmm. yeah and that's and i suppose i came at that with a very looking almost for a very direct answer but i i, I got a feeling you'd you'd fill in the blanks and show the complexity of, of what it truly is like to kind of coach that stuff in real time and that there is no like rule of thumb in terms of like oh yeah you must do it you know only three times a week but it, it does depend on, on the volume and and how like density can can be a, a big factor too depending on how how you know how big the volume is or or what have you i think just to pile on a little bit more like i think like as you get better like like when you become elite i think the difference between like elite people and like younger training ages is just like you are from a neurological standpoint like your, your central nervous system those elite people are taxing that a lot more than you know the average you know school kid or whatever and so because of that, you have to be a little, you have to be much more careful about how much volume you want to do it for, for the high intensity stuff. And I think that's even more true with males than females because like, you know, because of the different hormonal differences and things like that, like, you know, if a, if a man and woman have the exact same like physical, you know, anthropometry and like, you know, lean muscle mass and everything like the guy still is going to be able to 
perform better, right? Because they're able to like um, fully like utilize their their muscle fibers more than a than a woman can, like in general, right? So if you take a, a woman and a man, women weigh the same amount, the same lean muscle mass, and everything they do the same stuff. You you probably know a lot of like little guys that can just you know jump seven fifty, and like women jumping that is like really difficult, right? And so like because of that, those men's CNS is going to be like not able to handle as much volume as a typical woman, even at the elite level. And so like, you just, that's something you just have to kind of be aware of. And I think you learn that if you're actually like talking to your athletes and like, actually like looking at how they're, how they're performing. So like, I don't, you know, people do like really complicated stuff, like take a saliva test or do like these tap tests for reaction time, or even do like, vertical jumps every day measure like I think those things can be useful and they can work but like sometimes if you're on the go you don't always have that stuff or sometimes it costs money and people don't want to do that or whatever but like you just ask people how they're feeling and you watch them you can kind of figure that stuff out especially with a trained eye and and as you've said like this is something you learn over time rewinding to the assisted jumps and so forth let's assume that someone didn't have like the machine that you have and, and that gives you large amount of kinematic data would you kind of opt for maybe variations like a speed bound or something to kind of elicit somewhat of the same response or a downhill type variation or, or are those kind of not in line with the same thing that the i guess what you're what you're using at the moment would currently provide um so I would say, like, I, I actually, like, hate speed downs. I'll talk a little bit about why I hate them. But, like, I mean, I think the, the easiest, the $50 version is you can just buy, like, medical tubing and, like, create, like, a bungee kind of system. And, and you, you know, you can get good enough with, hey, you stretch it a certain amount and run at a certain speed, you can kind of get what you want. And you can figure that out. And so that's actually kind of what I use if I'm on traveling. I'm considering bringing my thing, but it weighs like talking kilograms. It weighs like 25 kilograms, and it's a pain in the butt, and it needs power and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's not as um, convenient to carry that thing around. Um, but yeah, you can use a bungee. I think downhill stuff is good. It can be good. The, the usually the difficulty is that a lot of people, like I guess, in an ideal world, which also costs a bunch of money. And some some of these tracks have these little like downhill incline track things like that could be really useful and cool, but those are pretty rare I think. Mm -hmm. Obviously, hills exist in nature. Like you can try to do that, but usually you don't have something that's like a pretty low grade that's that's really flat and consistent. Like that's hard to find often. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of like the challenge. You don't want to be hitting you know uneven surfaces when you're trying to bound downhill. Like that could be a disaster. Um. The reason why I would maybe stay away from, well, let me speed bounds are not terrible things to do. I don't like speed bounds because what the heck is a speed bound? I guess like maybe in our heads, we know what a speed bound is supposed to be. But like, if you look at it if from a kinematic standpoint, what's, this, what's the difference between a run, a bound, and a speed bound? How do you define that? And so, because that definition is like very like vague, 
like I don't even understand where we're actually optimizing in a speed bound. What what should I cue somebody in a speed bound? You know, get off the ground as quick as you can, and it turns into a sprint. Right. And so it's like, I just don't know actually what I'm doing. And so like, maybe if you're purely a sprinter and, you, and you're trying to add a little bit more um, force into the ground than a sprint, then okay, fine, do that. But if you're a jumper, then like, what are, why are we doing that? What are we doing? Mm -hmm. you're, already, you're already doing stuff that's going to give you longer contact times and higher forces. You know? So... Like, I don't think that the assisted stuff, I think, is less about creating these, like, like super maximal situations. So when I say super maximal, I mean, like, let's say that your average contact time is typically 150 milliseconds. Like, you're not using assisted stuff to make your contact times 120. You're using assisted stuff because while you might start out do 150 milliseconds on your contacts. As you go longer and longer and longer, that contact time is going to go up to 160, 170, 180, 200, because you're just running out of steam. But the assistance can can make sure that each one of those contacts you're relatively consistent in those those kinematics. So you're going to stay at the same speed. You're going to stay at the same contact times, and you can get more of those quality reps in. But if I just went and I told you, say, hey, do you know, 50 meter bounds, the beginning bound is not like the same as the end bound. But if I assist you, I can make them pretty close. Mm -hmm. Does the idea of endurance bounding for that kind of reason not appeal to you? Or do you feel like at certain periods, like 50 meter bounds can be, can be fine, but oh, you kind of get away from them quickly. I'm on the fence about it. I'm on the fence because I've talked to a lot of these old old school guys. So like I don't know how much you're familiar, but like back in eighties and nineties, say like in Arkansas, there was a ton of guys there that were jumping really far, like you know, seventeen fifty ish guys. Like seventeen, twenty plus guys. And what they did back in the day, and I've talked to a lot of them, is they were doing 100 meter or 100 yard bounds. They were doing like, you know, up to like 10 times 100 yard bounds and stuff, like crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And those guys were super strong in the weight room and all that stuff. And so, like, guys like that, they don't train like that nowadays. I don't know if that's good or bad or whatever, but like, those guys from like a power perspective look like they could put their foot through the ground and like quite literally Brian Wellman did put his foot through the ground at the world championships in, in I think it was in Toronto a while ago and they had to like fix up the runway and, and do the competition again like like those guys were super duper strong so like I think there is something to that but I think that it takes a while to build that up and I also think that you have to have really strong muscles and tendons to be able to do that. So, like, don't do these long bounds if 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 they're going to tear your body up and your technique is going to be bad. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't think there, there's I don't think there's a a physiological reason to be to, to need to have like 
jump endurance. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's like a really like an actual thing. Like mm-hmm. you don't need to have like lactic bounds. Like you don't, you don't <laughs> need to be able to like buffer lactate to be a good jumper. Like that's not a thing. But you do need to accumulate volume of jumps to to be like stiff to have like mm-hmm. stiff um you know tendons and things like that but i think that i'd i'd maybe i'd probably argue that it's better to get those dosages get it in smaller dosages with a higher frequency mm-hmm. that's what i mm-hmm. from what i know that i think that'd probably be better mm-hmm. but again those guys were really successful doing that mm-hmm but but I know that people these days don't do that because I don't think those guys could handle it. And and, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. Like like for instance, like Will Clay, Christian Chill, like those guys don't train like that. And if they did, they would probably have blown their Achilles a few years ahead of time. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that that doesn't mean that they're like weaker or something like that. They're just super duper elastic guys. And that training is probably just not necessary for them. Mm-hmm. However, I know that a lot of the Cuban guys do crazy stuff like that. They might not do the 100-yard bounce, but they're doing crazy, crazy volume. And I think that's also why a lot of those guys don't last very long. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there is something to it, but I think eventually, like, something's got to give. Yeah. So, yeah, your kind of philosophy on that would be repeated exposure in small dosages where the quality can be maintained um versus you know teaching what most people will learn through that type of exposure is at the very least some sloppy technique if that's provided they stay healthy mm-hmm. yeah that that yeah. definitely definitely makes sense and i think like What's happened over time is that there's been this shift away from, say, like, a call like static lifting. So, you know, full squats and, like, you know, really, like, deep lunges, like, really deep, like, full range of motion, like, slower kind of lifts. And, like, I understand that to a degree because, you know, maybe it's not specific. Like, what does specific mean? Like, I, I I guess I, I put specific in quotes because, like, I don't think anything in the weight room is remotely close to what people are doing on the track and in their events. So I, I would argue that anything you're doing in the weight room isn't terribly specific anyway. And so, like, because people have shifted away from doing that stuff, they've kind of skipped over the people's ability to, like, have really strong connected tissue. So, like, doing really like deep static stuff that's slower is really good for like tendon like growth. It's not necessarily good for stiffness, but it's good for like thickness. Mm -hmm. And that you're going to need some, you need to build it up, build up some thickness so that you have the ability to jump a lot. And eventually if you're jumping too much, that thing is going to pop. You know, if it's your Achilles or, you know, your quad tendon or, you know, you've seen that, unfortunately, you know, like you just said, Christian and Will, you know, Levon Sands tore his um, patella tendon, like, 
these some of these guys are having like really big tough injuries. And I'm not saying that necessarily it's because those guys don't lift the way they're supposed to or whatever, but I'm saying that those types of things can happen if you're not your connective tissue isn't really, really strong or if your volume is <clears throat> is too much. Mm-hmm. And all those those guys tend to be those longer, leaner guys. Mm-hmm. And and if you're those longer, leaner guys, then it be, I think it becomes even more important because the torque is, is going to be even higher for them mm-hmm. than someone who's more shorter, you know, shorter um, joints and things like that. Mm. And so that would be somewhat against maybe some of people's thinking when it comes to you know, the longer, leaner guys need to maybe, or, or even more elastic guys need to avoid the short range of motion, or sorry, not short range of motion, full range of motion. Um, you, I'm sorry, could you repeat that again? I call it come in and I... It, oh, no problem. Um, So I guess um, what I'm saying is sometimes I've heard that athletes will, who are like elastic, longer, leaner, need to maybe avoid some of the full range of motion lifts. Um, because it quote unquote kills our elasticity, but obviously again, that could be just down to dosage and, 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 um, you know, density and the rest of it, you're, you're making a case for that. It's to a point, of course, it's very necessary for, for health. Yeah. I mean, I know like Boo Snyder, for instance, like he is like, thinks that deep squats, like during competition period or pre-comp is bad for that reason that you just pointed out people might lose elasticity and, and like i'm i'm not sure if i totally like agree with that like yes doing some of this full range of motion stuff to a degree can like it, it's certainly not optimal for creating stiffness 100 mm-hmm. percent. but we're not just squatting and going home like we're squatting we're also like doing a lot of jumping and sprinting so it's mm-hmm. like there might be a small like interference effect between those things but like there's always an interference effect so like i'll give it a slightly different example but it's like think of you're a 100 meter sprinter right you want to have a good start but you also want to have high uh top end speed right so the stuff that you do to be a really good starter sometimes it, it, there's some interference with the things that you need to do to have good max speed and so like being an elite athlete's about balancing stuff out. So if if you have to give up like tendon resiliency to be a little bit more stiff and, and like elastic, like I don't know if that's always the right trade-off because maybe mm-hmm. you don't make it to the season. Yeah. And that's so like most so important, right? That's like you you gotta you 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 can't just optimize fairly optimize stiffness. You have to optimize health. And so if you're not doing that stuff at all, I think that's a that's a major gap and it's going to catch up to you eventually. Mm-hmm. And but I also think that some athletes like to feel those big lifts because there's a there's a there's a testosterone benefit. There there is like a, a potentiation uh, benefit of those lifts and stuff too. So it's not I don't think it's just as simple as saying that oh those things kill the the elasticity, but like but a way around that though like you can also do isometrics like i don't know how many people are saying like okay well we're not going to do those deep lifts but we're definitely going to do you know these 
tendon-specific isometrics. Tendon-specific isometrics are also, I mean, are really, really good for joint health, but they also, they're not necessarily, if they're, if they're the longer ones, those ones are not good for stiffness either. You're going to create some more compliance there, but you're going to, but you're going to help um, make sure that you're sending the signals to repair any type of damage that might be done. So again, you're always going to be trading off like the tendon health and tendon stiffness. Mm -hmm. If you're doing the really fast, explosive, like isometric ones that you're only doing for like three seconds, like those can be really good for stiffness, but they're not going to be really good for health. So like, mm -hmm. there's always that balance between mm -hmm. those two things. Yeah, and anecdotally, again, I, and I think I mentioned this example on the on the podcast. Although I wouldn't declare myself an overly stiff athlete, but I found huge benefit from a you know potentiation standpoint of using deep squat up as close as two days before a competition in very low dosages and felt more elastic more elastic on the day of competition don't know how it even works but i just know that the effect was so profound that it's just not how i show up on an average day you know it just was so different to to how i would usually be at a track and that obviously takes some getting used to but like you know that would be conventionally speaking like just a really bad prescription in 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 some situations yeah i mean i i think it's a, it's about the dosages to it like the uh, the day before the olympic uh prelim you know she lifted and she then she pr'd like like she did some well let me lie I have to look it up, but she definitely lifted the, the day before. I'm not sure if she did deep squats necessarily that day, but if she did, at that point, she was only doing deep squats once a week, and the volume is really low. It's really just for maintenance purposes anyway. Mm -hmm. and, and and so, like, yeah, as as the the season progresses and things like that, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna shift those those densities you're going to shift those you know volumes and intensities but I, I believe that you should always have some deep squatting in the program so the triple jumper maybe that's less important as a long jumper but to your point there definitely can be a potentiation effect that and i think that's person by person as far as the timing and, and how um impactful it can be so mm -hmm. it's something you got to play around with and, mm -hmm. and that, i think that's what kind of makes coaching fun is that no everybody's different and you got to experiment a little bit and see, see what works totally no i i agree with that um yeah i'm, I'm conscious of, of time here aaron because i know we're, we're we're bleeding into an hour and 20 here and it's it's just flowing by um i know from following you that your main kind of source of of information and and where you have a lot more of these exercises and, and philosophies paired together is on your instagram page so i'm assuming that any you know prospective jumpers slash coaches are are going to be able to contact you and are best to contact you there right yeah yeah definitely i try to answer all of my dms and stuff but, um yeah i even check that older you know where all the weird ones go to so I'm sure you get plenty of those. Yeah, man. But 
but yeah, contact me there. I'm I'm be happy to help people. And your username is at Young Jumps. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, Young Jumps. Yeah. So I think to coaches and and uh, athletes out there, like if you want detailed explanations and reasons behind a lot of the things that we talked about here today, um, Aaron does a really good job of of dedicating a lot of time and effort to explaining the rationale behind his posts and and i think anyone looking to learn a little bit about triple jump will, will benefit massively from from taking a look at his posts and yeah to coincide with um you know the topic about tia's journey as well i'd say it would be well worth a look for many people to see how much she's developed uh, in the last few years because that was a, a certainly a cool thing to hear more about um just hearing you talk about the last four years and and the fact that she went from a thirteen thirty triple jumper now to being on the cusp of 15 meters, which is like, I mean, regardless of raw talent that she has and clearly did have that, like, it's not easy to progress at the elite level. Like the marge, margin for improvement just becomes smaller. The law of min- diminishing the returns, as they call it, um, mm-hmm. you know, means you have to get very innovative and very, you know, understanding about the person, the athlete and all the rest of it. And, Definitely over the last hour and a half, it's been really good to hear all that you've had to, you know, contribute on that front. And I know that people that are getting access to your platforms will will see just the amount of depth and breadth that you've got um out there on, on triple jumping. So really do appreciate it, Aaron, for for sharing all the knowledge that um that you have with us the last hour and twenty. Cool, man. Yeah, I appreciate, you know, you putting me on here. Um you know, it, it, it's it's nice to be able to kind of talk about this stuff. And it's nice to hear that people are interested in what I have to say. And I hope that, you know, people can learn from this and learn from my Instagram and, and help everybody jump out there. I think that, especially the women, I think there's a lot, a lot of potential left. And, you know, I love the sport and I want to help it grow as much as, as much as we can. And so the stuff like this is, is exactly what we need to push the sport farther. Couldn't agree more. Um, so yeah, thank you again for your for your time. Folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Aaron and do be sure to check out his Instagram page um here after this episode. And as you said, he's a pretty open book. He answers all of his DMs. So if you're if you're smart enough, you would be availing of of the great wisdom that he's brought to us here today and uh, much more that he's got to give away. So thank you folks for listening to another episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again very soon. Take care. Thank you. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to a podcasting platform of your choosing and leave a review, or you can share it online on social media so that your network of practicing professionals can benefit from listening to the great guests that we get on this show.